They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk to music. What's up, what's up? Welcome to episode two of Craig's Pop Life. I'm your host, Craig Seymour, the writer, the author. Um, gotten my books, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Um, my memoir, All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. You know, it's all about me trying to make that money while I was in grad school. It's kind of like a little like a 90s story, so check that out. And then my novel um, called Who's Your Daddy, which is recently out, and that's kind of all, um, it's about different generations of gay men dealing with love and the place of love in their life and what they want from love. So um, that's a very personal book to me as well. And if you haven't gotten it from now, I'm a black gay man, and you are getting pop culture commentary from a black gay perspective. So just so that is very clear. And my forthcoming book that's going to be out um, in just about a month is called Special, a critical meditation on the life and artistry of Janet Jackson. So um, I've interviewed Janet a couple of times for some Vibe cover stories, and I just feel with her being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it is high time for... um, us to just be able to put a critical narrative together about how she fits in with pop culture as a whole, and then also just in the trajectory of her own career, how that all holds together and just kind of rethinking some of the cliches that are out there about her career. So I'm really, really, really excited about that. So all sorts of big things popping, as T.I. would say. And... Um, I know last week I told y'all that I would probably be on iTunes by now, but for some reason, I don't know, it's taken a long time to migrate. So, um, ooh, thinking of a, um, that's a dope Mariah Carey song. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, I don't want to be kicked off with no copyright. But anyway, um, so I think this is going to take a little bit, a little while, but so I'm posting the episodes. I'm embedding those on my website, craigspoplife.com, and then, um, along with all the things that I might reference throughout the um, show, and then eventually it's going to be on there. I have the RSS feed, and it's on Stitcher. And, you know, a lot of my real podcast peoples don't really F with um, iTunes podcasts because they just don't find the interface that satisfying. And I know for me, you know, and I just sporadically listen to it, it just drives me crazy. It seems like either I I I thought I had downloaded a podcast and it really didn't download and I'm stuck somewhere without Wi-Fi and can't listen to it. Or else I listened to one episode of a podcast two years ago and for some reason every damn episode of the podcast is downloaded on my phone and taking up space. And I just haven't figured out how to. And, you know, I was driving um, not that long ago. I was driving across the country and all I wanted to do was just make a podcast playlist. So like I could listen to this episode of this one podcast and then listen to this other episode of another. And it would just kind of play back to back. And I mean, I'm sure there's a way to do it, but I just could not figure it out. So in any event, that is um, what's going on with that. So um, look forward to that in your iTunes. 
And I'm coming to you on a very special day. It is February 7th, and that is Dilla's Born Day. Um, I said it's born really weird. But anyway, Dilla's Born Day. And if you don't know who Dilla is, he's one of the most important um, producers. You know, I don't even want to say hip-hop. I don't even want to, I mean, I just want to say, like, just if you're talking about the pantheon of black musical genius, Dilla is up there with what he was able to do with samples and just how he created them. And, you know, it's kind of hard to describe the sound, but a lot of people were doing testimonials today. And Q-Tip came the closest to what I really feel about it. And he said that, you know, Dilla was programming it. Like, he was programming his beats, but it just felt live. And that's so true. Like, it just felt so organic and so just in the moment and just, you know, just viscerally, you just felt it. And... You know, I bring this up a lot for my Janet people because I know there's a lot of Jan fam up there, and Dilla had Janet connections. You know, there's always just this kind of weird story that I don't know that anybody's ever gotten to the real crystal clear bottom of it, but some kind of way. Dilla was involved with the making of the main beat for Got Till It's Gone. And but he didn't really get credit. He may have gotten drum credit or something like that, but he didn't get like the big production credit because, of course, every Janet production credit is just Janet, Jimmy, and Terry. But anyway, so um, he has this one track that samples Janet's Come Give Your Love to Me. And now you know you are a crate digger if you are coming up with Come Give Your Love to Me and sampling that. But that used to be the joint of the day. And I put that on the website, but you can hear him address a little bit of the Got Till It's Gone controversy um, at that. And then he also did two official mixes of Got Till It's Gone. One was like, um, I don't know, Saturday Night something. Saturday Night, I don't know what it's called. Uh, but the one I really like was JD's Revenge Mix, and people always felt like that was his way of kind of getting his revenge on not getting the credit that he might have felt that he was due with uh, um, with the actual track. So it's an interesting story, and he's definitely one of those people. You know, I, I'm a firm believer in speaking people's names and just um, you know keeping people's stories out there because it's just a Tremendous story, and of course, his masterpiece was this album called Donuts. Um, came out in '96, and he recorded the whole thing when he was in the hospital, battling like he had a bunch of rare blood diseases and lupus and all this kind of stuff. But basically, to pass the time, his mother would bring him a lot of 45s. For y'all that don't know what 45s are, they're small albums, and you need to put a little thing in them to um, make them spin because the hole's bigger. Hence the donut thing. But anyway, so he would be there with the um, 45s and his sampler, and he would just be making music. And he was so, I guess it was kind of like some bloating involved with the disease. So he, he you know, his couldn't even walk because his legs were bloated so much. And even his hands using the samplers, they would get too um, bloated. So his mother would have to massage his hands. But um, he kept on doing it. And then Donuts is now considered a matter, you know, almost university, universally a modern classic. So, I mean, that's when you're really doing something for your, your art, you know. So just a special guy, special story, and definitely um, gave us one of the best Janet Jackson songs of all time. So just thought I would bring that up. Um, so what's going on in the news? Y'all, what is going on with this blackface stuff? What is going on with white people and blackface? I mean, 
the story just gets weird. I mean, with the the you know the thing with the Ku Klux Klan, and then next thing you know, he's trying to say he was trying to dress like Michael Jackson, and then you know, and then the real tea was when the Attorney General came out and tried to say he dressed as Curtis Blow at a party, bringing Curtis Blow's butt all in the thing. I'm just like, I guess these are the breaks. Break it up, break it up, break it up. <laughs> so, I mean, part of what this whole thing is um, bring up for me is just how we don't really have a very complicated way to take to talk about blackface in our society. Because on the one hand, there's blackface that was as part of the menstrual t- tradition. And for as problematic as all that was... Um, it also brought black styles, black dances, black music, um, to white audiences for the very first time. And, you know, there were even black people, black performers that dressed up in blackface as minstrels and, you know, earned a living after slavery, um, by performing that way. So, you know, it's extremely problematic, but for better or for worse, when you talk about blackface minstrelsy, you're talking about um, really the root of the foundation of American popular culture. And there's a really good book, if you're interested um, in knowing more about that, there's a really good book by Eric Lott called Love and Theft, Blackface Minstrelsy and the American Working Class. Very good book that really gets into... um, all of those kind of things when you see it in a performance tradition. And, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, started out minstrel. But now that is a whole nother different thing than these crazy frat boys. I mean, not even frat, but when you in dental school, I mean, you have been through high, I mean, you have had plenty of chances to make s- stupid mistakes and should have learned better. And that is a complete different thing. And what really bugs me out about it is like, especially the guy um, that tried to say that he was Michael Jackson, and he was talking about using black shoe uh, polish on his face. And I'm like, you know that's not good for the skin. Neutrogena does not make, you know, black shoe polish. And if you were really trying to do a character of somebody, especially in the 80s, you could just buy brown makeup, right? That's the thing that would make sense. I mean... Virginia's full was full of drugstores. You could have gone to Woolworths. You could have gone to dr- Dart Drug. You could have gone to Drug Fair. You could have gone to People's Drugstore. So the idea that you are going to debase yourself so much by putting something designed for shoes on your face automatically means to me that you are participating in a ritualized performance of dehumanization of somebody else because you are degrading yourself in an attempt to degrade somebody else. So I just really don't, I mean, that's just so, it's just something about that whole, um, the shoe polish thing just really, really, really just got to me because it's just, and especially shoe polish, I mean, you know, people use different things back in the day. I'm talking about using shoe polish on your face in the 80s. You know, that was some whole level of just, um, you know, just, it's almost like it was some tradition passed down. You know what I mean? Because how's some little white boy thinking about who t- who teaches you to be in blackface for, first? You know, it almost like it is passed down. And to go ahead and just, you know, 
look in the color section and get you some dark and lovely foundation or something that would have been maybe too feminized, but also would have been too much of trying, you know, giving too much dignity to the situation that you actually had to put something that was made for shoes on your face. So I just been, that's just got me all sorts of fucked up. I just, um, you know, I just think it's just crazy. And, um, one of the people that I just always read, one of my favorite critics, because she just really puts it right. Um, she's a fashion critic at the Washington Post, Robin Givon, and she wrote this great um, essay, and I put it up on um, I put it up on my website. But I just want to read you some parts of this. Her article is called "Blackface Is White Supremacy as Fashion." Let me tell you that again: Blackface is white supremacy as fashion, and it's always been in season. And which you should read the whole thing, but yeah, this always gets you know what gets on my nerves when somebody does some racist ass shit, and it's all like I'm sorry for the people that are hurt. I'm not sitting at home with a band aid on my finger. I'm not hurt. You know what I'm saying? I'm not like don't need to go to therapy about it. It's just some wrong shit. It's just a question of right and wrong. And yes, you should, as a person that's going to be wants to be a politician, wants to represent people, then you just need to be on the righteous path but this whole thing oh for who i hurt who i hurt that's to me almost like almost on it's, it's verging on trying to say that black people are too sensitive right because oh we got hurt oh who gets hurt like babies get hurt oh i don't didn't mean to hurt you you know as opposed to i am sorry that i participated in this ritualized dehumanization of your people that was fucked up, and I shouldn't have done it, you know? Um, so anyway, so one thing she says, she says, apologies tend to focus on offering a bomb to the black community, but shouldn't apologies be made to the American community writ large? After all, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and misogyny shouldn't just offend the Jewish or the gay community, or only women. They should horrify us all because those dark forces chip away at our collective humanity. I learned this lesson. I can't even remember. I learned this. It's funny that Robin Gavon works at the Post, but I learned this lesson early on when I was a music critic at the Post. And I can't even, I, I know what it was. I was reviewing some public enemy album, but it wasn't one of like the high, it wasn't no fear of, the black, of a black plant or anything. It was like one of the later ones. And there was some controversy um, of, about the anti-Semitism, and I had written something like, you know, and it includes lyrics that some might find find um, anti-Semitic. And she just ripped me a new one. She came, she's like, do you think these lyrics are anti-Semitic or not? I was like, yeah, they're crazy anti-Semitic. So she was like, well, say that they're anti-Semitic. Don't hide behind some might think or some like that. Take a stance. Don't, you know, don't hide behind that um, facade of like, putting the onus on the other people to find offense in that. We have to have certain values as a society, and we have to have um, values of how we think, not only how people should think about our people and the members of our community, but also how they should treat members of other communities, and we have to stand behind that. So anyway, this is another part I really like. Let me get to it. Um, 
Oh, because this drives me crazy. She says, culturally sensitive parents find the N-word offensive and teach their children not to see color. Color doesn't matter, which is a bit like saying that who a person is doesn't matter. And how humans have interacted in this country for centuries is irrelevant. Somewhere between not seeing color and color being the only thing one can see, there's a glimpse of a person. And I can't remember. It was like a comedian or something that it cracked me up. It wasn't even that long ago, but somebody was talking about like they met somebody and this person said, "Oh, I don't see color." And then the, their response was like, "Well, could you?" Because you know <laughs> that would really help the relationship go along if you could acknowledge the specificity of my cultural experience. Um, but the other thing is, I think we just need to start getting this whole idea of color out of the dialogue of race too because once colors into it then you have people saying that nonsense that just drives me up a wall like i like black people i like red people i like pink purple polka dot people they ain't no pink purple to polka dot people we are dealing with what we're dealing with is not color we're dealing with race and how race has been constructed over time and how some people certain races have been subjugated um to others. So that is what we're dealing with. So, you know, just all this, the language, and it's just, sometimes it just all passes by me, but just for some reason this week, it just um, got on my nerves. And this is the last thing I'm going to read from her article, but I just thought this is really great. She said, racism is not measured by how you treat the person of color you know, but how you treat the ones you don't. It's not measured by your affection for the singular black person, but your respect for black people in general. I will say that again for the people in the back. I will say that again for people that are trying to stitch that in little, you know, in little things so that they can hang it up. Somebody who's going to put it on this screensaver. This is just so real. Racism is not measured by how you treat the person of color you know, but how you treat the ones you don't. It's not measured by your affection for the singular black person, but your respect for black people in general. She wrote that. So, again, just a really, really great piece. Um, and so you should check it out because, I mean, and, and the real deal is, you know, we do have to deal with this shit. Because, like I said, when you talk about minstrelsy, that's at the core of... American pop music. Anytime you talk about crossover, anytime you talk about anything, we're dealing with minstrelsy. So it's like we can't pretend these things don't exist. And we, I kind of feel like as people of color, um, I feel like sometimes I need to educate myself even more about something because I really need to break it down in order to make the situation that people, the narratives that just get repeated on cable news and stuff like that more complex, that you really need to be able to break it down for people. So that is that. So moving on to music. Um, how many of y'all watched, um, uh, what's it called? American Soul. I kind of like, it was a lot of characters for me, you know, I felt like I needed a map or something like that. But off top, I kind of liked it. It kind of was giving me like a black madman type vibe so i'm definitely in um and i thought kelly Rowland was good i thought um kelly price was good all the kellys so um but other things in music i john i just don't know what to do about these grammys coming up i just don't i just don't know what they're gonna be like it's just crazy to me i you know it's so much so that i have a theory i think the grammys are cursed and i think it all began in 2009 hear me out okay 
that was the big year that, you know, Rihanna was supposed to do the big Disturbia performance and everything, you know, big high production and everything like that. But then all the, um, but then she was abused by Chris Brown and all that went down and then she didn't perform in it. Okay, follow me. Then you got 2012, Whitney died. You know, another just um, bad mark on the Grammys. And then you have 2016, where Rihanna had to cancel another performance. She was going to do this really um, sort of big production number of Kiss It Better. And I think something some happened to her voice, something, something. But bottom line is, it didn't go down. And that was just another big thing. And then you have B not winning for Lemonade in 2017, which I'm still tight about. Um, then last year you have Jay and SZA not winning much of anything. And so I just, I'm over the Grammys. I just feel like, I feel like some way they just took a turn. It's like they were always the stuffier awards, but you still got some sense that, you know, there was some sense of like, not in, in the individual awards, but there was some kind of gravitas to the award per- proceedings and just the awards in general. You know, so it may have been crazy that such and such didn't win Best New Artist or something like that, but there was still some sense of um, gravity and some sense of weight to the um, awards as a body. You know what I mean? Even though a lot of individual messed up things, but I, I don't even care. I was just looking before um, I started doing this, and I, there's not one award I care about. There's not one thing I really care if the person wins or not, because I just don't even feel like it matters, and I feel like it, um, like I said, they just lost their way. And the performances this year, you know, I'm going to watch Barty just to see what she's going to do, um, and I have to support my boyfriend, Sean Mendez, because I'm just a supportive boyfriend like that. So, you know, that's just what I must do. Um, and I was looking forward to seeing Ariana, but I just can't believe that with all the low star power that they already had, okay, they couldn't come to creative terms with Ariana. They wouldn't let her sing the song that she wanted to do. I mean, they should let Ponytail get up there and do whatever, just to get people to watch. It's just crazy to me that they, and the, see, that's that stuffiness and stuff like that. And them thinking, oh, well, you know, yes, she's the hottest pop artist around or whatever, but we want her to do this and we're the Grammy. So we're going to um, just do this. And let's never forget how bad the, you know, the Grammys are supposed to be about all creativity and artistic expression. And they were the first ones to cut Janet out. You know, Janet was supposed to do the um, was supposed to introduce the Luther Vandross tribute, the year of the Super Bowl stuff, and she was axed right away, and that even caused Jermaine to leave the um, you know, the Recording Academy. So it it definitely goes very deep, but I'm just like, I'm not even gonna see Rihanna. I mean, see um, Ariana, and I know people have been talking about this Jennifer Lopez Motown thing. I have not been able to find truly credible evidence that that was supposed to happen. I've scoured the Grammy site. Everything that I've seen that's reported it was like sources say, sources. So I have been, you know, I just, there's too much to get upset about in the world right now until I hear that it happens or sees that it actually happened. I just can't get upset about it. I just have to move on because that's just too nutty to even, um, to even 
react about. But y'all, we have to talk about this Alicia Keys situation. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. I think she is very talented. I think, you know, like her philanthropic stuff and everything like that. But always since the beginning of her career, it has sort of seemed like her accolades and opportunities have maybe outpaced what she's actually earned. Does that make sense? Like, it's almost like people really, it's almost like I feel like people really like the idea of her almost better than what she actually represents. Because I just feel like even from the beginning, you know, and just talking about the Grammys, remember how she was nominated for a lot of stuff along with Indy Ari? She won almost everything and Indy Ari almost didn't get nothing, you know. And if you look at it, I mean, she's had hits and she's had a number of hits and stuff. You know, she hasn't put together a greatest hits album, whatever. But like, I think people, I think the perception of her hits is is bigger than the actual hits that she had. And she hasn't had a chart hit since 2012. And I know some of y'all watch that voice stuff and all that kind of stuff, but, I, you know, I, I I don't see how that, how sitting in the chair and having to turn around every couple, whatever, how that makes you eligible to host the whole ass Grammys. I'm like, I'm going to need you to, like, host a Lady of Soul Awards first, maybe do a Centric Awards. I'm going to need you to, like, you know, to scale to the Grammys. And it's, you know, I'm just, I just, I just think there's so many talented people out there. And we just always get these situations where um, it sometimes goes to people for just these weird reasons. And, you know, it's, it especially kind of, um, affects me when it happens to certain black artists because it's kind of like it is like why are they giving so much shine to this particular black artist as opposed to another what kind of things is that playing into is that playing into colorism is it playing into different things i mean you always have to be vigilant about that stuff like i feel like if you're talking about grammys and all that kind of stuff i think jennifer hudson would have been a good grammy host you know, she could sing you some good songs. She could do it. She could be duetting with people. She's naturally funny. I would, I would have no problem with Jennifer Hudson. You know, or hell, get. I know I talked about Amanda Seals um, last week. You could have gotten her. You know, and then let's never forget the Beehive will never ever forgive her. And I would consider myself a proud card carrying member for not releasing the "Put It in a Love Song" video. I don't know what happened with that with Melina as the director and all that kind of stuff in Brazil. The outfits look hot. I can't imagine how it didn't turn out. How I could imagine how it turned out so bad that they couldn't even release it. But whatever. So I don't know, y'all. I'll be watching, I guess, you know. Um, I don't know, but I just feel like this is the year that the Grammys are just dead to me. I have ze- I've never had less interest in the Grammys than um I had this year. So keeping on the music tip, um, earlier this week I had posted a reader response from an article that I wrote way back in 2002 on the state of um, R&B for Vibe. It was a cover story. And this was one of these weird stories. I don't really talk about it that much because, like, I think it turned out a fine story. And I mean, I'm always grateful for every assignment. I'm always grateful for any um, cover story assignment because that's a good check. But it was kind of a weird thing in that you know, it was about the state of R&B, 
But then, of course, we had to have the people photographed and I had to go get with different people. So it was kind of like it was a general essay, but yet it had to be decided who would be on the cover and all this kind of stuff. And so when it, initially we were talking about it, it was my boys Jagged Edge and like Faith. So I was down because I love me some Jagged Edge um, all day. And um, I love me some Faith. So... But then in the report, and I even went to Jagged Edge to um, to a show in Buffalo, and you know, this was in like peak Jagged Edge hysteria, and it was a lot of fun. And you know, I just really, really love Jagged Edge. Really think they're talented. And then, of course, I just love Faith. And this was um, the Faithful album, Faithfully, Faithful, Faithfully, whatever you know what I mean. Um, that album, which is still her best album, so I was really excited about that. But you know, shit goes down in magazines. It generally does not reach the level of the writer because the editors take care of all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, somebody in Jagged Edge camp pissed off one of the top editors of Bob. And like next thing I knew, they were no longer going to be part of the cover shoot. And then, so then all of that Jagged Edge stuff that I had in the story, they still wanted it in the story, but it had to be radically condensed. So I was like, oh, Lord, we're like, who's going to be on the story now? So then Blue Cantrell came in, and it was kind of like, eh, to, you know, hit him up style is nice and everything like that, but is that really part of a, tr you know, it's just, but we needed somebody, you know, we're talking about, and magazines work on really tight deadlines, so it was like we were trying to come up with people, and she did have a hit, so, you know, and then... um it was like, and then Usher got into the picture. And I really did like that album. I think that was the album with You Remind Me on it and everything. But just in general, like, I appreciate Usher's talent. I don't necessarily think he's the most interesting, you know, person in the world to, like, profile or something like that. But, and then they added Craig David. And, um, you know, I just, I was not really in on <laughs> on the Craig David movement um, to begin with. I know a lot of people like to fill me in. I thought that that shit was some corny ass bullshit. Like I was just like, why are you singing the chorus from the perspective of the parents? Like in this, isn't this like teenage popular music and stuff? It should be about sneaking out. Yeah, we're sneaking out and doing all this. Not the parents whining. Why are you coming in so late? Why are you doing this? Fill me in. Fill you in. What kind of stuff? <laughs> Anyway, I just thought that was the most corny stuff. You know, it reminded me, like, the parents filmed me, and it reminded me of, like, something like they made a video for high school students or something to try to increase their communication skills with their parents. And it was like, you know, fill me in. You know, <laughs> it was like that. It just did not strike me as um, a real kind of song. And it's funny. It's like sometimes when I read my old writing, um, I just, I feel like I drop in shade when <laughs> I didn't even really realize. And, you know, it's funny. I feel like the longer, I started out writing for, um, like, local publications where I could write whatever I wanted to write. And then I wrote for the Village Voice and stuff. So I could really, or even, like, spin and bomb. Like, I could just, you know, say whatever, nigga this, nigga that, you know, and just really be raw. But then I started writing more for, like, the Washington Post and, 
Entertainment Weekly and stuff, and I think that my style got a little smoothed out. And so I read my old writing sometimes. I'm like, yeah, boy. So that's what I'm thinking in terms of the um, Janet book. That's that's going to be written by Mixtape C. I'm taking it back to the beginning. I don't give a fuck. You know, I'm going to really, um, you know, give it to you with that. But <laughs> I was reading this article with this Craig David again, and I died. So it's talking about... Um, fill me in, and I'm asking the other artists in the story about that, and so, so the Jagged Edge people, um, Brandon, one of the twi twins, Brendan and Brandon, said, the first time we went to Europe, Craig David was blowing up over there, and we weren't really on to the whole two-step thing, but when we heard Craig's record, we were like, okay, he's all right, he's hot, but then... <laughs> I put as Faith Evans. I get it now. It's an album I put on when I clean up the house. <laughs> oh, I was like, that is so shady. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but that's funny. But okay, so anyway, so then because so many people were all into um, this Craig David thing, I posted this picture of myself with Craig David that was taken at his U.S. album release party. Now, you know somebody had to make me take a picture. If you ever see a picture of me with an artist, you know somebody made me take that picture. That might not be the way it is in the future, but you have to understand back in the day when I was doing it, like in the 90s, 2000s, when I was doing it, um, most of the part is like you didn't really have a cell phone that you could just pull out and do a selfie right quick. It's like you had to have a whole situation of somebody bringing out a camera and it just I always felt like it changed the dynamic of the situation of me it put me too much into like the fan territory and not the journalist territory so I never did that yes do I wish I had pictures of me with Janet both times yes but I prefer that I have uh um you know sound interviews so um Anyway, but this was when I lived in New York, and I, I was when I was a, like an editor, at Entertainment Weekly, and editor vibe and stuff. And this was back in the day, like you know, late nineties. Release parties were hot. Release parties were hot. Like they were very fun. And the thing was, they happened late, and it wasn't even any competition. So like, all the publishers from different labels would go to another artist's release party just because it was a fun thing to do. And I remember this Craig's David one was really nice. It was like in a penthouse and we were, you know, drinks were flowing and everything like that. I remember Jana Fleischman was there. She's now the super duper rock nation person that has, you know, been with Jay for all these years, but she was there and, you know, it was just a fun time. So that's where that picture comes from. And I don't even know... I don't know if I was just there to be there or was that part of the story at that part. I, I really don't even know. But since y'all would like, felt like I was dissing Craig David and stuff, people were sending me all sorts of links to songs and this and that. And why was not up on Craig David and he's been recording and this and that. So I was feeling bad. I was feeling like, well, that, like I had just, you know, sidestepped on the UK brother. I was like, well, let me see what's what. So I'm walking through, um, Publix, you know, in the soup aisle, have my title out, and I just call up Craig David and just, you know, do a sh do the shuffle, trying to give the brother a chance. And this song, what's the song name? I don't even know. Hidden Agenda. This song comes Hidden Agenda, and I'm listening to so it. I'm bopping my head for a second. I was like, wait a minute. This is John B's Don't Talk. This is an exact copy of John B's Don't Talk. How you gonna go copy John B? 
I was just, I was outraged. I was just like, because, you know, John B., that's a white boy that is at the cookout. Okay, he's at the cookout. Big Mama done already made him a plate and told you not to touch it. And it's one of them big plates because, you know, it's not the expensive chinette. So it's kind of sagging in the middle. And then everybody's trying to save the aluminum foil. So the aluminum foil doesn't go all over the plate. The aluminum foil just kind of rests on the plate like a blanket. Like that's how John B. is at the cookout. And everybody's dancing to Don't Talk. So I was just like, Craig David now is just canceled to me. Unless somebody can give me some good reason why I should re-listen or can have any kind of justification for that. So yes, I have posted both Hidden Agenda. I hope that song's called Hidden Agenda. Well, whatever it's called, it's on um, my website. So I put that. And unless you come up with some good reason why I should re-listen or why it's not an exact copy of my boy John B. Done stole the good white man song. Then um, Craig Davis canceled for me. I just don't. I'm over it. I might even take that picture down. Um, so lastly, um, I just wanted to let y'all know that I don't know how many people know about the Paz and Jot poll that Village Voice does, but it's kind of it's lost significance over the way. But you know, it was really an important thing. Um, back in the day, like to be a critic that was invited to be a part of that, it really showed that you were um, somebody that had kind of national rec- recognition and you, know, you could see what everybody else was listening to and everything. And they're kind of um, bringing it back. So I submitted this year. So I, um, on my on the website, it's a pictures of all this stuff. It's basically it's my top 10 singles and top 10 albums of the year. But I made some changes from the ones that I posted um, initially, so you can check that out. And um, I have some Janet stuff I wanted to talk about, but I'm going to save some of it for next week. But I did want to say, did y'all know, like, um, earlier this week, the Poetic Justice came out with Blu-ray with 10 deleted scenes, screen tests, and commentary from John Singleton? Because I ain't know. I ain't know until somebody posted it on um, Twitter. And I was shook. And sure enough, they had it right in my good Best Buy, $14.99. So I actually have more than one copy. So I'm going to give one away. But what I really, really need um, from y'all right now is just like, I really want people to share the podcast just so, you know, I don't want you to share anything of mine if A, you don't like it. Or you don't like it all like that to share. Because, you know, there's some things that we're into, but we're not into it all like that to share. And if I'm in that category, I'm fine with that. Okay? And same difference, like, sometimes we just like stuff for us and we really don't know a lot of other people around us that would like the same thing. And that is fine, too. Sometimes that's the very reason that brings us to books or brings us to podcasts or something like that. Because we're connecting with a voice that might be missing from our um friend group or whatever and that is all fine i am never asking you to share anything that you do not like but in the event that there is something that i have ever produced one of my books um like i just said my novel who's your daddy that's now out on auto on um, as an audible book so you can get that on audible you know a lot of people have audible memberships you can let somebody know about um one of my other books, you can let somebody just know about this podcast. But if you can send me proof, the first person to send me proof that they've shared um, something that I've done with, recommended it to another person, um, 
then they'll get the extra copy of the Poetic Justice Blu-ray that I have. And, you know, the only thing that I ask you not to do is just, I mean, you could do it, but the only thing that, if you just, like, do a Facebook post or do a Twitter post, that doesn't count. But if you, like, direct message somebody on Facebook or direct message somebody on IG or Twitter, then that would count. So just... um send me all my contact information is there so just send that to me and like i said the first person that um can prove to me like five shares will get this copy of poetic justice the blu-ray with all the deleted scenes which hopefully i will be talking about next week so anyway y'all again it has been fun i really love doing this i hope y'all love listening to it as much as i love doing it and until next week be cool be kind be creative be your goddamn self and i love all y'all Craig, I'm out.